I staggered outside. I could scarcely keep my footing. Emotion flooded all through me. I was violently sick in the darkness of the college garden. I had travelled down to Oxford on the afternoon train, given my detailed talk on British foreign policy, had already agreed to spend the night with a very pleasant young undergraduate, when on the radio I heard the news. Anthony Eden, our foreign secretary, has resigned. Neville Chamberlain, our prime minister, now effectively controls the foreign office. The Rhineland, Abyssinia, Spain, Austria, the brutality, the barbarism creeps ever closer. Our best man, the man who saw this danger most clearly, has gone. I shiver in the dark. At last we're rid of him. The cabinet won't miss him. I knew if I kept pushing he'd crack. What's the reaction in this morning's papers? The golden boy. Don't worry, Prime Minister, I'd fully brief them on Antony's tantrums, his instability, the tragic effects of his shell shock in the trenches. His political career is finished. Then I shall press ahead with my general European settlement. We've been trapped in continental alliances and disastrous continental wars for far too long. If we can arrange a fair settlement with those badly treated at Versailles, we'll be free of those alliances, free to trade with the rest of the world, dominated as we did in Victoria's time. The first trading nation of the world. These are very delicate times. We've created a whole lot of dysfunctional European states. And Czechoslovakia is the worst. Poles, Hungarians, Romanians, Germans, all stuffed into one nation. The Germans in the Sudetenland are increasingly restless. Not without justice, Herr Hitler said they should be returned to Germany. Indeed. Joseph, I have a task for you. Yes? Eden was not alone. No. Almost the whole foreign office is against this. You remember when I sent Halifax on a private mission to Herr Hitler? Oh, yes. That Australian on their news desk leaked it to the press the minute he heard about it. What was his name? Rex Leeper. Leeper, yes. I must be able to speak confidentially to Herr Hitler as we negotiate a settlement, Joseph. I can't trust my messages to him if they go through the Foreign Office. They'll be leaked. I want you to set up a secure courier system. Perhaps your intelligence contacts? I understand. Your courier must be 100% reliable. Oh, don't worry, Prime Minister. He'll be that. Stop hitting me! Sit down All right, all right, all right. Thank you, Sergeant. You can leave us now. Yes, sir. been assaulted. Look, I wish to make a complaint. There I was, simply sitting in a lavatory. A public lavatory. Paddington Station. And I was quite innocently reading Middlemarch, my favourite novel. Look, I've got it here. Be quiet. We've got a detective sergeant who's prepared to swear in a public court that the last thing you were doing in there was reading a Victorian novel. You've been holding me here for three days now. You haven't charged me with anything. I am a man of some influence, you know. I went to Eton and Cambridge. If you don't shut up, I'll have the sergeant back in here to knock you around some more. 
Now, according to your file, file, you are 27 years old and a member of the Anglo-German Friendship Society. You attend Nuremberg rallies. Yes. You speak several languages and are a highly paid and well-regarded BBC producer. I listen to some of your programmes myself. Thank you. All in all, you have a glittering future ahead of you. But you have just been arrested for being involved in particularly disgusting and perverted practices in the public lavatories of Paddington Station. I really don't even like to read the details. As a consequence, you face ruin. No, I deny it. Any... ruin. Unless... Excuse me, are you offering me some sort of a deal? Uh, your crime will always hang over you. You would face several years in prison. We could prosecute you any time we wanted to. In the meantime... You will work for me. Your work will involve considerable foreign travel, and you will be well remunerated. You can keep your job at the BBC. I'm sitting here in a police station listening to this. Who are you? None of your business. And incidentally, do something about those filthy fingernails of yours. Now, if you'll just sign here, Mr... Um... Burgess. Guy Burgess. How was Berlin, then? Germans aren't what they were. <laughs> I mean, when they were in the trenches, they'd come charging at you, shouting and screaming, bayonet shining. But if they didn't kill you, and you didn't kill them, and you'd taken them prisoner, I'm pretty sure that after half an hour or so, everyone would have calmed down enough for us to offer them some cigarettes and tea, and for them to dig out some bratwurst for them. It's true enough. <sighs> it's the way they look on you. As if you're not even a member of the human race. They don't discuss things with you, they tell you. No rational debate. Just ranting and intimidation. Yes. And there's this mindset they automatically seem to take, that they are always the victims in everything that happens, and you, we, are always the aggressors. Everything that happens is your fault. Victim politics. Because of Versailles, all its injustices, you were to blame for all our suffering. And for those tiny bits of it you're not responsible for, the Jews are. They see Jews as these enormous, all-powerful creatures, trampling poor defenceless Germans into the ground. It's convenient. If we're responsible for all their sufferings, they're responsible for none of them, so they can behave however they like, without moral restraint, and it's all our fault. Mm. The perfect get-out. You know the seediest man I met in Berlin? Eh? Our ambassador, Sir Neville Anderson. <laughs> He's Chamberlain's man. I meant to write accurate reports for my readers. How Hitler's secretly instructing the sedating Germans to rebel against their own Czech government. How he's behind the bloodshed and riots. But all the time, Enderson's on my back, demanding I don't write anything that might upset the Fuhrer, harm Anglo-German relations. I do write it up. But then, funny thing, I get back here and discover half my articles haven't been published. Mm, now, that's Sir Joseph. I work for the News Chronicle, supposedly a fearless liberal newspaper. Joseph Ball's the most feared Downing Street press officer I've ever known. Stuck there in his dirty little back room in Downing Street, he'll have found your editor. My editor wouldn't have been put off by Ball. He has Chamberlain inviting every press proprietor through the back door to Downing Street, schmoozing them. Mm. You'd have got your proprietor to phone your editor. Oh, but proprietors can see how bad matters are in Germany. Murders, thuggery, camps. They're members of the human race. They're rich members of the human race. They're mm. petrified the Bolsheviks are going to overrun Europe from the east. Adolf is their only bulwark. Ball plays them like violins. Come in. Ah, Harold Nicholson, my favourite MP. Rex, good to see you. And Vernon? Harold. Fresh home from Berlin. I've been following all your reports in the Chronicle. Nothing like as many as I wanted. Sit down, Harold. Tea? Uh, yes, a pot of Earl Grey. would be delightful. With perhaps some of those delicious foreign office scones. <laughs> of course. Eileen, send in some tea and scones, please. Well, do I have a story to tell you? A story? 
I just happened to have been to the cinema to watch Fred and Ginger's latest extravaganza, Follow the Fleet, and unfortunately, or rather fortunately, I was accompanied by Mr Guy Burgess, who, the cinema being empty, subjected me to various um, <laughs> attentions, most of which I gave way to. And you an MP! Uh, later, <laughs> in a tea room, he showed me a copy of a certain document. Yeah? Gentlemen, I've spent a lifetime around official documents. This one was genuine. What was in it? Well, first, we must establish Mr. Burgess's politics. Where do his sympathies well, he's lie? he's on the far right, isn't he? Nuremberg rallies? When he was at Cambridge, he was very left, I I judge him to the left, but still concerned for this country. Stalinist? Perhaps, but we anti-appeasers must be a broad church. Even Winston admits if we're to face up to Hitler, we need an alliance with the Soviets. What was in the document? A letter from our beloved Prime Minister, addressed to the Fuhrer. What? Jeez. Stating that, due to domestic political concerns, it was necessary for him to reassure the British public that on the matter of Czechoslovakia, yes. his government was approaching the entire problem in a strictly impartial manner, so he was therefore announcing the appointment of an entirely neutral emissary, Lord Runciman. Oh, the great and the good. Who would visit Czechoslovakia, meet with representatives of all the affected parties, consider all matters he had discussed with them, and then issue a totally impartial report of his assessment of the situation. Good grief. However, our Prime Minister continued, the Fuhrer was not in any way to be perturbed by this. No notice would be taken by the British government of any report issued by Lord Runciman. And what is more, the real purpose of Lord Runciman's visit was to quietly instruct the Czech government that they were not to oppose German demands for their territory and must cede them when required. The fact that this conversation between a politician and a newspaperman took place in the Foreign Office had nothing to do with me. In fact, I wasn't even here. How did it get out? How did Vernon Barclay get the story? I'm not sure. For Hitler to trust me, which he must do if we're ever to sort Europe out, we can't have stories like this in the press. Good gracious, I had Leighton of the Chronicle for tea only last week. Apparently the editor was on holiday. But how did the story leak in the first place? You're sure your courier's reliable? Uh, oh, 100%. Then who? MI6 reckon it was dissident elements in the German foreign Who office. Who leaked it to dissident elements in the British Foreign Office? How are we going to sort this out? I've already talked to various editors. Everyone knows the lefty news chronicles full of Jews and communists. Most of the papers will suggest the story's a lie, deliberately spread by your enemies to undermine Runciman. You've spoken to Barrington Ward? Yes. Tomorrow's Times editorial will follow exactly that line. You, Prime Minister, must continue talking to the proprietors. I've been doing that for months. Well, try a bit of fear, Prime Minister. Nobody knows better than press proprietors we're in a recession. Their advertising revenue's been cut to shreds. Say, if our economy's ever going to recover, the city must feel confidence. A general European peace would provide exactly that. That would work. Thank you. <laughs> And, uh, uh, Joseph. Prime Minister. Uh, that Australian press officer. Rex Leeper. Even if he didn't have a hand in this, get him sacked. Well, that might not be that easy. He's got strong backers in his department. But I'll turn him down. Prime Minister. Hmm? You, you know we always talk about going away fishing for the weekend. I, I uh, this weekend we... I'm going on a bird-watching tour with my sisters. But as soon as this crisis is over, we'll go. 
All through the spring and early summer, as Czechoslovakia grew from pimple to great ugly boil, I stayed in London, hiding beneath a canopy of new leaves and summer blooms as we stifled in a blazing heat wave. The Sudeten leader, Henlein, obeying Hitler's secret orders, organized ever more rioting against the Czech authorities, all the time appealing successfully for international sympathy in the face of such brutality and repression. And as this pantomime degraded, Hitler demanded ever more strongly the international community do something about these outrages and massacres. He ordered his army to undertake maneuvers right on the Czech's Sudetenland border. And what does our government do? Lord Runciman scurries relentlessly around Europe on his mission for peace, whilst our newspapers, the Times, the Mail, the Express, denounce the Czechs as dictators drop heavy hints concerning the need for concessions, a reasonable approach, justice for the oppressed. I can stand the filth, the corruption of London no longer. Myself and Rex Leeper, who is unsurprised to find himself on indefinite leave, decide to clear our lungs and souls with a prolonged walking tour in the West Country. Beneath the vast hulk of Exmoor, we put up in a hotel in Porlock. Right, Harold. Oh, no, I'm not. I've just read this morning's Times editorial on Czechoslovakia. So what does it say? Oh. oh. If the Sudeten Germans now ask for more than the Czech government are apparently ready to give in their latest set of proposals. It can only be inferred that Sudetans are going beyond the mere removal of disabilities and do not find themselves at ease within the Czechoslovak Republic. Ah. Oh, at ease. Barrington Ward's usual well-oiled cant. Continue. In that case, it might be worthwhile for the Czechoslovak government to consider whether they should exclude altogether the project, which has found favour in some quarters, of making Czechoslovakia a more homogenous state by the secession of that fringe of alien populations who are contiguous to the nation with which they are united by race. Ah, the old sheep must apologise to the wolf for any unpleasantness, Gambit. Doesn't it make you ashamed to be British? I mean, what are the Czechs going to think after reading that? What will the world think? Everyone knows the Times editorials speak for the government. Chamberlain's given away our entire negotiating position before we've even started. Yeah. Got to admit, though, when it comes to writing shit, nobody can do it quite as tastefully <laughs> as the Times. Harold, are you going to spend all morning in the lavatory, or are we going downstairs for breakfast? <clears throat> Was there news on the radio as we left? I wasn't listening, Harold. See, that's the worst of being stuck in some rural backwater where nobody knows anything. With the Czech crisis as it is, the Germans might invade at any moment. Relax, Harold. Just enjoy the beautiful scenery. All the flowers. Look, isn't that a cow over there? <laughs> yes. Well, you're on the Parliamentary Dairy Committee, you should know. <laughs> Slowly, we climbed up a long, steep valley through campion and wild garlic and young ferns. 
till finally we walked out onto the height of Exmoor. The worst thing, Rex, is how bloody ineffective you feel. <clears throat> Useless. We try to oppose this unending mania for invading other people's countries, even daring to go so far as saying it's wrong, and we're humiliated again and again. Now our Prime Minister's acting as Hitler's doorman in Czechoslovakia. And take it so personally, Harold. I care for my country. It makes me cringe. We, we anti-appeasers are a complete shower. Look, look at the Labour Party. At each other's throats, never coming up with a common line. Oh, that's true. Winston's a, a drunken old windbag. Eden a tantrum-throwing glamour boy. Harold Macmillan's a cuckold. I'm an effeminate homosexual married to a lesbian. <laughs> And you're an Australian! <laughs> <laughs> My histrionics over, we passed up onto the great flat anvil of the moor. It was massive. Just went on forever and ever. And above it, unending blue sky. Sun hammering down on parched earth. There. That makes you feel better, doesn't it? Yes. We walked on and on over the heather and grass, toward its highest point, Dunkery Beacon, where four tracks of white sand meet at a cairn. I saw a figure on a donkey approaching us through the heat haze, all in black. Isn't that good? It's a priest, isn't it? Like something out of the Bible. Good morning to you. Good morning to you, Father. It is a very hot day. Indeed it is. Where are you gentlemen heading? Well, we were looking for some sort of pub or other for refreshment. If you follow this track here, yes. uh, you should come across one in four or five miles. Though you might find it a bit primitive. <laughs> Anything will do me. Well, I should be... Uh, excuse me. Um, Reverend? The Reverend Cresswell Webb. Uh, what, are you, what are you doing on this moor? On a donkey? It might look a bit strange. But I assure you, it is practical. I am vicar to the parish of Orr, which covers much of the top of Exmoor, a very poor parish. Many of my parishioners do not have enough to eat, so my donkey carries food. I also carry medicine. Most of them cannot afford a doctor, so they're forced to submit to my amateur ministrations. Uh, I'm afraid there is typhoid loose on the south of the moor. I see. Well, gentlemen, I well, really... One more question, uh, Reverend Webb. I don't suppose it interests you, but you don't happen to know the latest from Czechoslovakia. Why do you think it wouldn't interest me? I waited at home specially to hear the news. My parishioners like to keep up with the latest developments. And what are those developments? It really is fascinating. Fascinating? That Czech Prime Minister, Benes, he really is a very clever man. Everyone was expecting a German invasion. Yes. yes. Well, Benesch had obviously worked out that Hitler had ordered Henlein, the Sudetenland leader... Yes, I, I, I know that. ...that whatever happened, Henlein was to refuse any offer Benesch made him. So Benesch very cleverly offered Henlein a free hand to do whatever he wanted, even secede from Czechoslovakia. Uh, so Henlein, devout boot-licking Nazi that he is, promptly turned him down. <laughs> no. Benesch has turned the whole situation on its head. 
The world saw big, bad Czechoslovakia ordering poor little Sudetenland about now that Jack boots on the other foot. It's extraordinary. <laughs> it's wonderful. And the situation it's put our dear Prime Minister in. Yes, a, a diplomatic coup. Well, uh, I really must be going. Indeed, uh, thank you. Thank you very much, Reverend Webb. That's perfectly all right, Mr. Nicholson. Oh, oh. <laughs> How do you know my name? Yeah, I've seen your picture in the papers. Uh, please, do keep giving those brave speeches in Parliament. It gives us all heart. <laughs> come on, come on, Delilah, come on. <laughs> Unbelievable that, that someone in the depths of Somerset has got such a sharp grip on foreign affairs. Why? Speaking as an Australian, the London elite always patronises the provinces. The pub? Yes, the pub. Um, do you think they'll serve wine? <laughs> That treacherous little Czech Prime Minister. He could at least have waited before he threw in the sponge. It was a bluff he to could at least have given Runciman the chance to meet all the parties, appear to have considered all the options before he came down on the side of the Sudetens. Now all the world's on Czechoslovakia's side. <sighs> Difficult. And Herr Hitler, quite understandably, is likely to take matters into his own hands. Well, And he... the worst part, after this... The British people will probably want a war with Germany. They won't, Prime Minister. I'll have to resign. Never, Prime Minister. You want a Europe without problems? A Europe we can be free of? No, every Prime Minister since Campbell Bannerman's wanted that. Then act. Something decisive. Be a statesman. And do what? I don't know. I... Fly to Berlin. Uh... Meet the Führer face to face. Argue your case. But what about the Czechs? Oh, damn the Czechs. Do people want a war over a far-off unknown country, another European bloodbath like the last one? However rough Hitler might be on the outside, underneath he's a pragmatist. Christ! He was stuck in the trenches for four years. The last thing he wants is another war. But I can't go over there. Leave a divided, dissatisfied country behind me. The knives will be out for me. Who'll guard my back? I will. Prime Minister, I'll square the press lords. None of them want a war. I'll stamp on the bloody MPs, put a bit of fear among the journalists, get you portrayed as a lone, brave man, setting off to win peace for the world. Which is what you are. You'll do that for me? Yes, Prime Minister, of course I will. And, and, and Prime Minister... Joseph. When all this crisis is over, it really would be good to go fishing sometime. Rex Leeper and I returned to London two weeks later. At Reading, as the train stood in the platform, I leapt out and bought a paper. Chamberlain has flown to Munich again. If at first you don't succeed, fly, fly, and fly again. That's three times. The shame of it! Incidentally, Harold, just before we left Porlock, I received a telegram from the Foreign Office. Yeah? Informing me I was being relieved of my present post. Oh, Rex. I am sorry. Delicate hand of Sir Joseph Ball at work. And in three weeks' time, I'm to take up a new and prestigious post in sunny Bucharest. Bucharest? Suppose the equivalent back home would be getting posted to Whoop Whoop without even the sheep to talk to. 
Isn't there anyone, anywhere, prepared to stand up and explain what's really going on? We're a, a nation of sleepwalkers wandering round on the edge of an abyss. And be accused by the entire press of betraying their country in its hour of crisis. There's a lot of fear about, Harold. Well, I'm prepared to say something. I've been invited to give a talk by the BBC, and I'm going to say exactly what I feel. Mm-hmm. Who's your producer? Guy Burgess, who understands exactly what's going on. Guy! Ah. It's really good to see you. And you. Uh, Harold, there are one or two problems with this script. The script? What do you mean? Well, you know what the BBC is like. All sorts of people have been sticking their noses in. There are demands for it to be altered. What? Quite a lot. Altered? Even suggestions that it should be scrapped altogether. That you talk about something completely different. Um, now, now look. Harold, you must believe me. I have fought for your script tooth and nail. I absolutely believe in it, 100%. Oh, don't worry, Guy. I know you do. But in the end, too many people have opposed me. Which people? People at the top? People at the top. The Director General? Well, you know, Director Generals. They're always the first to fold when the government's involved. I'm not altering my speech. I'm, I'm an MP. Just the same, I think it would be wise if you went into the studio with an alternative topic prepared. What alternative topic? I don't know. Where have you been recently? The West Country. Well, there are plenty of cows there. You're on that parliamentary committee about stinging me jig, aren't you? Guy, I'm not going to address the British nation on the subject of dairy products. I'm going to give my speech. Well, perhaps you should go into the studio. Then you'll understand. Yes. Yeah. Harold! Harold! There, uh... There won't be any chance of us nipping into that lavatory over there and indulging in some sudden and meaningless sex. Oh, I'm not going to have sex with you. I'm going to make my speech. It's just that when I'm in a tense situation like this, it really helps clear my mind. Uh, incidentally, have you been on one of your trips to Berlin recently for Mr. Ball? Just back. Here's your copy of the latest missive from the Führer. Do you show copies of these letters to anyone else? Of course I don't, Harold. I'm a 100% loyal Englishman. Oh, yes. Um... When you were in Berlin, did you manage to speak to any of the opposition? I don't do opposition in Berlin or Rome. It's far too dangerous. I'm a 100% loyal Nazi. Highly polished boots, highly empty head. What are they saying about this Czech crisis? They assume that whatever happens, they'll win. Apparently, the Fuhrer privately described our Prime Minister as a worm, always begging to be trodden on. <laughs> so, um, your speech? This whole building stinks of cowardice. Let's get in there. And so we went into the studio, and I saw what Guy had been on about. Instead of the usual one and a half people not appearing to do anything, the room was stuffed. Serried ranks of policy and editorial committees, heads of department, even the fearless director general himself. Guy showed me the control desk where the engineer sat with his hand on the fade dial to cut me off. Then he showed me a secretary holding up a telephone on an open line. I asked Guy if Mr. Ball would be listening in on my little talk. He assured me that he would, and the talk would be cut the second he disliked it. I smiled at Guy. Guy smiled at me. I gave them my talk on dairy products. He's done it. Pulled it off. Aye. Look at those bloody headlines. Peace in our time. No European war this year or the next. Peace with honour. That's the Jeez. one that really sticks in my throat. Daily Mail. 
Lord Rothermere so far up Hitler's ass if the Luftwaffe bombed Birmingham, the male would blame the Brummie. Look at them all, milling around, cheering our own defeat. They really think this is going to stop a war. What was it like, Munich? Off of the squeamish. Slaughterhouse in slow motion. Of course, not a single check allowed anywhere near it. There were the gangsters, sharp-eyed, sharp-knived, eyeing each other up in their comic opera uniforms. The French, sober-eyed, cynical, actually aware of what was going on. And then there was our own dear Prime Minister, floating through it all like Greta Garbo and Love. When it came to the actual signing ceremony, it turned out nobody had remembered to put ink in the inkwells. Then the next morning, the dirty work done. Chamberlain and the Fuhrer retired to a private room to mull over the general European settlement. Der Fuhrer indulges him by signing some scrap of paper. An old umbrella flies home happy as a sunboy. It's the end, Vernon, isn't it? Democracy, truth, justice. We're buggered. Probably. How's Oral taking it? Well, you heard about his broadcast. Yeah. Well, he swears there's one place in the nation where you can still speak your mind. Parliament. So he's going to speak there. <sighs> I'd better get back to my paper. Run my Munich piece, which will, of course, be spiked. Where are you going? The stab cellar. Fleet Street's darkest, dirtiest drinking hole. That's where I'm going. think about it, pretty boy? The Munich Agreement. Our triumph. Everything we've been working for. It's, um, yes, it's terribly good, Mr. Ball. You puss. You really don't do celebration, do you? You know where I was? No. Right behind him at the window in Downing Street when he leant out to the crowds below and said, peace in our time. That's something, isn't it? Yes. You know what else? The King and Queen themselves, King George and Queen Elizabeth, have only invited him to stand on the balcony at Buckingham Palace with them and receive the cheers of the crowd. That's an honour rarely bestowed. You want another scotch, Mr. Ball? <laughs> and by drinking here, Burgess. Look around you. The most powerful journalists in Fleet Street. I know every filthy secret of every one of them. Who they screw, their buggeries, adulteries, who pays off who for what story, and they know I know. This place is filthier than your fingernails. I never buy a drink in here. Uh, your scotch, Mr. Bill. Uh, see? <laughs> Seven years it took us, me and the Prime Minister, to reach this beautiful end. Yes? 1931. The whole financial collapse, banks crashing, millions out of work, communists, socialists, the whole nation ripe for Bolshevism. Chamberlain stopped that. He was chancellor. He was brilliant. He understood the truth about the British. If enough of us are in work, especially in the southeast, we don't give up monkeys about the millions who are jobless in the provinces. It's not our business. They're work-shy, lazy bastards, so that's how we played it. Kept enough of them in work in the South, wobbling on the edge of unemployment, so when it came to an election, shit scared, they all voted for the one person they knew would keep them in work, Neville Chamberlain. Got returned with huge majorities. So, we'd beaten the socialists and communists on that front, so of course they had to try and defeat us on another. We're appeasing dictators, giving way to fascists, all that nonsense. Now we've got them beating them on that one too. Yes, you have, haven't you? And come the general election next year, it'll be another landslide for us. What's that? I don't know. Ah, there you are, you 
budgie asshole. It's Mr. Leeper. Well, I never. I hear you've been posted abroad. You did that, you bastard. Me? If I had a dog that looked like you, Ball, I'd shave its ass and make it walk back. We got a sore loser here, lads. That's where we're at, isn't it? This whole world swimming round up your syphilitic, fear-filled fundament. Well, this is what I think of you. You bloody traitor. Help me, Liz. But you enjoyed that, didn't you? <clears throat> Watching that Australian getting the bollocks kicked out of him. I did. <laughs> you dirty little Nancy boys. You quite like us dirty little Nancy boys, don't you? You're all filthy little perverts, but... But you quite like what we do. I mean... If you were to lean back against this barrel and I was to undo your fly buttons with your filthy fingernails. With my filthy fingernails. And I was to hold this tiny little thing in my hands. You shouldn't be doing that. Why not? You enjoy it. Now then, Mr. Ball, just leave this to an expert. I don't want your hands on me. Oh, but you do. No, don't, you filthy little pervert. Get off me. All right. You're a queer. I know. But I won't tell a soul. Mr. Speaker, I, I ask this house this question. What did Herr Hitler want from this grand European settlement just agreed in Munich? Shut up, you dirty I would, I would say Herr Hitler wanted three things. First, for the Sudeten Germans to be transferred to the Reich. Second, for the destruction of Czechoslovakia. Third, he wanted to display to the world that Germany is now the dominant power in Europe. In all seriousness, in all seriousness, I warn this house, we have given him all three. Sit down, you little twist. But the Prime Minister, the Prime Minister says, no, oh, I, I have this piece of paper, which he waved when he arrived home. Whether people take this piece of paper seriously in this country is of no consequence. What matters is how is how people take it in Europe. There, its reception has been disastrous. People say, for the first time in 250 years, with the betrayal of Czechoslovakia, the British people have openly, avowedly, dramatically made friends with the strong against the weak. For 250 years, the great foundation of our foreign policy has been to prevent the domination of Europe by any one single power. That principle has necessarily had the happy corollary we have always supported small, weak powers against the large and mighty. But with that piece of paper signed lightly, happily, happily perhaps, tragically for certain, 
in the late hours of the morning in Munich, the Prime Minister has put his signature to a statement that that ancient, that great, that humane policy of ours has been abandoned. I know that those of us who believe in the traditions of our policy, who believe that one great function of this country is to maintain a settled pattern of international relations, to uphold moral behavior, to not, to not make friends with people whose conduct is demonstrably evil, to say when we see thuggery and murder and the hounding of quite innocent and defenseless civilians into institutions such as concentration camps, that it is an outrage. I know that we who hold such beliefs are accused of possessing the Foreign Office mind. Well, Mr. Speaker, I thank God that I at least possess that Foreign Office mind. And that was that. I was booed in the chamber, rough-shouldered in the lobby, and attempts were made to deselect me in my constituency. A rather bruised Rex Leeper was packed off on his train to Bucharest. Vernon Bartlett continued to write stories that weren't published in the News Chronicle. I went back to my garden. I commenced a vigorous two-week weeding session. Witty as we might have been at our opponent's expense, in the end, to use the vulgar parlance, they had pissed all over us. We, the anti-appeasers, had been defeated. Utterly. Merford, it's good to see you. And you, Reverend Webb. Uh, come through. Would you like some port, Sherry? No, thank you, Vicar. Uh, do sit down. Thank you. <clears throat> the harvest was good? Good harvest, Parson. Terrible when it comes to market. I might have to lay off two more men if prices don't rise. How's John Purdy? Oh, his leg's badly broken. I was crushed by that wagon. I managed to get him a place in Taunton Hospital, though. I took round some food for his family. Lucky you got him into a hospital, or you've had me setting his bones. <laughs> Method. Cresswell? I wanted to talk politics, about how the government's doing. Yeah. Well, how do you think they're generally doing? Well, the economy's not doing too good. Oh, it's better than five or six years ago, mine, 1930. That was terrible. It was. But they say it'll pick up. And more generally. All right. <clears throat> this is about that carry-on in the churchyard Sunday morning, isn't it? A bit. Me and the two Miss Wills having a set to. I'm afraid I did overhear part of it, yes. I didn't ever raise my voice, Parson. No, you were a perfect gentleman. But the argument was about Munich. Ah, then Miss Wills. Oh, so hot and Chamberlain. They think he's wonderful. And you don't? Reverend Webb, I got two brothers buried all the way out there in France. Only ever got to see their graves once. I fought there myself. Mm, so did I. I believed in all they said us fought for. Freedom, <clears throat> dignity, justice. My brothers died for that. So did half the lads in this parish. And to see that man Chamberlain in Munich curtsying and scraping to that little thug, betraying the lies of they poor Czechs, Where's the justice in that? Mm, it's a very painful subject. Yeah, it is. 
how do you see the future developing in politics? A general election <clears throat> next year, 1940? No, I expect he'll get another massive majority. He's got the jingo press behind him. A prime minister with too big majority. You ever noticed how one of their eyes starts to go all wild, wander off round their faces? <laughs> he had that stare as he got off the plane. And with this brand new majority... How many more Munichs do you reckon he'll arrange till our nation gets swallowed up completely? What's the point of this conversation, Vicar? Metford, I assure you that nothing said in this room will go outside it. Do I have the same assurance from you? Of course. Before the coming general election, what if there were to be a by-election? Yes. A by-election in this constituency? Well, there aren't going to be one. I'm a member of the Conservative Party. Well, I'm a quite senior one. And as Hume chairman of the Labour Party, I haven't heard a whisper on it. And I would. Our Conservative MPs rock solid. I assure you, there will be a by-election soon. The Anglican Church has ways of um, hearing things. Well, say there is a by-election. What are you proposing? It all depends on how important you think Munich is. Important enough to vote against Chamberlain on, publicly? We know there are a lot of dissident Tories in the Bridgewater constituency. I wouldn't never vote Socialist. You wouldn't have to. The Tory vote in Bridgewater is only large enough if the opposition's divided. We are proposing a coalition. Those parties and people opposed to Chamberlain's foreign policy do not run individual party candidates. They agree to stand down. We have one non-party candidate run against the Chamberlain candidate. A coalition candidate? Can you imagine the trouble I'd have getting members of my party in line on that? Can you imagine the trouble I've already had getting our parties in line on that? I'm a perverse person, Metford Bowne. So are you. <clears throat> Who have you spoken to? Uh, we, the Labour Party, have the agreement of the Liberals. We've spoken to Will Penny. I like Will. Loves his cricket. And Bud Fisher, the communist shop steward from Bridgewater. Him? If we're ever going to have a common front in Europe, in the world, against the Nazis, <clears throat> that alliance is going to have to include the Soviet Union. Churchill says that in his speeches. Well, well, so does Eden. If this idea goes on, succeeds, you talking about a national government of this coalition, communists in government... There'll always be a minority. Oh, you expect me to believe that? Yes. This country doesn't have communism in its blood. But you and I both know how many reforms must be made. Well, look at John Purdy. Mm -hmm. If you hadn't been able to get him into Taunton Hospital, he'd have had me setting his bones. In 1938. In 1938, we've got outbreaks of typhoid in Highbridge and Huntsville. So men from Burnham won't even drink in the same pubs. I know. I know. But where's the money for all this socialist Paradise prices are falling. I'm laying men off, not taking them on. Just because the bankers crippled the economy in 1931, it doesn't mean we and our children all have to live in poverty for the rest of our lives just to pay off their debts. There are other economic systems. Oh, yeah, communism, you mean? No, I was thinking of Keynesianism. Vicar, how do I know you're not just a communist dressed up as a vicar? Madford... Do you really think communism is going to outlive Christ's church? <laughs> well, do you? Oh, you ask so much of a Tory. I only ask you to put your country before your fear. 
my gardening was interrupted by something extraordinary. The vicar we had met on top of Exmoor wrote to me asking me to suggest a suitable person to stand as popular front candidate in a by-election in Bridgewater. I recommended Vernon Bartlett. Harold, it's so good to see you. Vernon! Thank you for coming down to speak. How's it going? Well, it's taken a little time to explain to people what we're actually doing, why they should vote for us. We're doing well in the Labour, the Liberal areas, mm. but in the Tory ones. I could see it with my own eyes. In their headquarters, the Liberal and Labour and even Communist volunteers worked together happily enough, but the few Tories tended to keep to themselves, not speak to anyone else. On the doorstep, it was worse. The endless Panglossian campaign in the newspapers, Mr. Chamberlain is our saviour, everything's for the best in the best possible of worlds, seemed to be working. Until this happened. Who's in charge here? Um, <clears throat> I, I, I suppose I am. Suddenly, into the midst of our HQ, strode this enormous Tory woman, clad in Amazonian tweeds and gumboots, straight from the hunting field. In her hands, she clutched an open newspaper. I want to work for you. Are you, you sure you've got the right party headquarters, madam? Of course I have. Do you think I'd work for that worm, Chamberlain? Haven't you seen the evening papers? Uh, no, what, what's in them? Here, look! And I saw. Kristallnacht. Photographs of broken windows, shattered glass, panic-stricken Jews driven through the streets by jack-booted thugs. The luckiest thing that ever happened in British politics. Overnight, our campaign was transformed. All sorts streamed in to volunteer. Farm labourers, clerks, poachers, housewives, hunting, shooting, fishing types, bearded artists, bank managers, tailors, endless members of the unemployed. Unbelievable. An untrained crusade poured out over the constituency, hammering on doors, sticking bills, making impromptu speeches in pubs and shops and street corners, all in one voice, discussing the great verboten, British foreign policy. I addressed a meeting in Athelney, a muddy island surrounded by reed beds and miles and miles of flooded meadows. Athelney, where Alfred burnt the cakes as he worked out the fundamentals of English democracy, law, scholarship, education and defence, where our civilization was founded. The meeting was held in a corrugated iron village hall, held together by mud, jam-packed with farm labourers from whom rose a damp fug of cigarette smoke. After someone had sung God Speed the Plough, I spoke. I want to make this point to you. We who oppose the Prime Minister's policy of appeasement are not warmongers. We argue that war should be deterred not through weakness giving way to the dictators, but through strength, presenting an alliance of nations, Britain, France, Czechoslovakia, the Soviet Union, Holland and Belgium, strong enough to deter the boldness of the dictators, force them to negotiate on an equal footing. I have never known such silence from an audience. They listen to every word I say. Because of the present government's lassitude in negotiations, we have suffered serious setbacks. We have already ceded Austria. Now we cede Czechoslovakia's Sudetenland. 
And what that means, effectively, is that Hitler now controls the river Danube and the countries along it, Romania and Bulgaria, and beyond that, Istanbul. If he has power in Istanbul, he has influence throughout the Middle East, where we get our oil from. We, we have given him that. Defendants of appeasement often argue that all of this doesn't matter. If we hand him Eastern Europe and stand aside, it will only quicken the day when he invades the Soviet Union and the two of them can destroy each other while we trade quietly and profitably with the rest of the world. We anti-appeasers believe that this is wrong for several reasons. Firstly, because Germany will win such a war. For the first time in its history, it will have unfettered access to a wealth of oil, coal and raw materials. In ten years, it will be able to build the greatest war machine in history. We will be unable to oppose this. We will then be utterly obliterated. So what, I, what, what we are arguing is, is that if there is to be a war and... War is always nothing less than a, a, a tragic catastrophe. But if, due to our lassitude and policy of appeasement, war is something that is going to be forced upon us anyhow, and I'm sure many in this hall already, sadly, accept this um, as inevitable, now is by far the best time for us to fight that war, whilst our opponents are still uh, relatively weak. This is wonderful, extraordinary. For the first time in my life, I'm speaking to an audience who is listening to me. I mean, in London, your words just disappeared on this yawning chasm of indifference. But, but here, in Athelney, people actually care about what I'm saying. You can, you can tell it in their faces. And there's something else in their faces, too. Wonderment that someone at long last is standing up in public and actually stating what they privately believe. I decide to become more bold, adopt a few of dear old Adolf's wilder rhetorical flourishes. I'll explain, I'll explain to you how dictators work. They have perfected a system of inventing something that they do not want, of then screaming incessantly for that thing they do not want, swearing they'll die if they don't get it. <laughs> and then, when at last we have yielded it to them, of... of of staring at us and saying, no, no, that's not what they wanted at all. They wanted something, <laughs> they wanted something completely different. And then they immediately start screaming for that. <laughs> and, and there is another, even cleverer technique they consistently employ against our present government, in which they claim we are threatening them, that they are the victims of our greed and our treachery and our thuggery. They pretend that something we want, but they don't, is of absolute importance to them. After great posturings and lamentations, they then surrender it to us and say, after our almighty sacrifices in giving you this, we now demand you give us this, this, and this. And, and what does our Prime Minister do? He gives in to them on every single demand. These creatures are not victims as they present themselves. They are Thieves and robbers yes. and hoodlums. Yes. Let me say, let me say what I think Britain stands for. I'll call it a, a civilization of the mind. 
I'm not talking about anything highfalutin or over-educated. I'm talking of everyday decency and fairness of mind. Of demanding that the other person always has their say. Of seeing brutality and unfairness in the world and calling it that. Whatever the newspapers might tell us to think. Of acting against evil and tyranny, not with rashness and anger, but calmness and deliberation. These are our qualities. If we betray them, which in the last few years we have been doing repeatedly, we betray ourselves. It was a moment of wonderful triumph. But even then I noticed something. An unobtrusive man had been taking notes at the back. As soon as I'd finished, he left. I realized that even in Athelney, we were being watched. I had agents in the field sending me reports. Even early on, I realized there was trouble in Bridgewater. The Prime Minister's position was under threat. The whole election was being fought over foreign policy, but he paid me no heed. Three weekends, he'd been away with his sisters, bird-watching, and they'd become obsessed with the details of a royal visit to Downing Street. After their generosity in allowing him to share the balcony of Buckingham Palace, he'd invited them back to Downing Street. He, his wife and two sisters, talked about it, planned it incessantly. There's nothing to worry about, Joseph, he kept telling me. The country's right behind me. Just look at the press. I consider that the citizens of Bridgewater have achieved something like a political miracle. The fact that 82% of the electorate turned out shows the people are alert to the dangers of the present government's foreign policy. Vernon won with a convincing majority. His opponent, Patrick Hethcote Amory, blamed the BBC. I returned to London and dined at my club. At the next table sat a group of bankers, the very people whose greed and stupidity had got us into these awful straits. And all evening I had to listen to them swear they'd rather see the German army in London than live under a socialist government. London really is the vilest place on earth. You were right about the Bridgewater election, Joseph. I'm sorry, I should have seen it. Not to worry, Prime Minister. We've got to pull things round. Put an end to this talk of coalitions. No, I don't take talk of coalitions too seriously, at least in the short term. You command a massive parliamentary majority. That's for Bartlett's success. I use the usual techniques. He's a divorcee, so there's room for lots of juicy headlines. But in the long term... Yes? I'm secretly funding a magazine... The truth. It not only attacks our opponents in the usual way, gossip, scandal, but goes into some of the deeper issues. Why war's actually in their interests. Churchill's close relations with the Jewish bankers and financiers, the left's support for Bolshevism, the financial support they get from arms dealers. Joseph. The, uh, Prime Minister. What do you actually do for me? I mean, by and large, I've let you get on with your work, haven't asked for too many details. But what do you actually do? Now, don't you worry, Prime Minister. It's nothing you need concern yourself about. I work tirelessly for the future, your future, the nation's. I work for peace.
That fishing expedition we're always meaning to go on in the Highlands, so you can teach me the subtleties of fly fishing. Why don't we go next weekend? Oh, Prime Minister, that... Oh, that would be wonderful. I... Oh, we've got the royal visit on Monday, but we can work around that. And so the Prime Minister and I went fishing, amid wonderful mountains and purple heather. We found our stations in a remote river. The Prime Minister standing, learning to cast, and me just behind him. See, you've got a cast into the water's cheek. What's that? It's over there. There's a slack in the current where the trout rest. I see. Ah, that's better. That's much better. Now, uh, present your fake fly on the surface as a freshly hatched real fly. Fool the trout. It's all a matter of illusion. I'll try. I feel so calm, relaxed, away from London, here in the Highlands, with the Prime Minister. Oh, 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 what's happening? <laughs> You've got a bike, Prime Minister. Oh, it seems to be a real whopper. Hold my back. Oh, it's rather strong. Yes, Prime Minister, I'm, I'm holding on. This is fun, isn't it? Yes, it is. <laughs> hey, hey, you over there. What's that? Oh, it's a gilly. I'll clear off. The Prime Minister's fishing. Can't do that. I was told to tell him there's been some serious news. That Hitler's gone and invaded Czechoslovakia. What? His tanks are in Prague. Oh, my God. What on earth does Hitler think he's doing? We must get back to London. <laughs> They're exposed, like naked men in a searchlight. This is our chance. But alas, I'm going to be able to do anything with it. With such a rubble, we've got to. I'm, I'm going to call a discreet meeting at my house. Eden, Churchill, Duff, Cooper. Try and beat out a common platform. What about Labour and the Liberals? They must be there. But who? The Liberals are fine. It's Labour who are the problem. They're still as divided as you Tories. Exactly. I organised this cross-party public meeting. Booked two Labour speakers. As soon as one started speaking, the other one hit him. I had to pull him apart on the platform. No, we haven't got time for that any longer. Who... Who are the greatest stumbling blocks on either side? Stafford Cripps for Labour. Yes, and Churchill for the Tories. Uh, at my meeting, I'll separate them both out, put them and myself in my library, and not let them out till they've reached an agreement. That's what I call a high-risk strategy. It's exactly what the Fuhrer would do. I know. But if they didn't agree, he'd have them shot. I can always resort to that myself. This is all very inconvenient. Yes. I'll have to play host with our royal guests while you handle the crisis. I'll need you to make certain decisions at certain times. I'll slip backwards and forwards. And, uh, Neville, there's some worse news. Tell me. When the train stopped at York, I put through a call to my people at Downing Street. Yes? We've intercepted a phone call. There's going to be a private all-party meeting tonight of our opponents. Rebellion. The worst news is that both Stafford Cripps and Churchill have agreed to attend. If those two are finally talking... There's nothing we can do about that. I must appear in the front of Downing Street, as relaxed and welcoming as possible. You must stay in the rear and square the press. You know, really... Prime Minister? You'd think that Mr Hitler, before he goes off doing these wild things, would at least show some sensitivity to the way we democracies have to operate. Your Royal Highness, 
I am most glad to welcome you and the King to Downing Street. It is so nice of you to invite us, Mr. Chamberlain. We are both very much looking forward to our visit here. People are calling Mr. Chamberlain an autocrat, eh? You're going to write that in your paper, are you? I tell you this, Sunshine, you call Mr. Chamberlain an autocrat and I'll have you sacked before you finish typing. Winston, so good to see you. Why don't you come through to my study? There's someone I really feel we must talk with. How did you find the air in Scotland, Prime Minister? Well, Your Majesty, the air was certainly very good. I find it so bracing. Every time we're in the Highlands, I breathe it in and think, this is how the world really should be. Mr. Cripps, Mr. Churchill, Silence will not do. Our country is in a frightening mess. Most dangerous situation. But suddenly, by the good graces of the Fuhrer, our policy of appeasement has been exposed as a fraud. And we who oppose the government must stand as one and state loud and clear why appeasement is a fraud, what counter-policies we have and how those policies should be uh, put into effect. Um, uh, Mr. Churchill, you are most heartily offended that Mr. Cripps here criticised your opposition to the bill giving a measure of independence to India. Uh, Mr. Cripps, you fear that were there more rearmament, Mr. Churchill would use those arms to crush working-class movements here in Britain as he did during the general strike. I, I most sincerely recognise the offence that both of you feel, but in the face of the common danger which our nation faces, please, I ask you, start talking. That's all you are at the BBC, snivelling lefty pansies. And you want to know what you'll get from the government if you continue broadcasting your lies? Censorship. Serious censorship. And you can forget that bloody licence fee. Uh, the Times, Mr. Ball. What? The, the, the Times. Warrington Ward from the Times is downstairs at the back door. He wants to know what the government line on the cheque price is. Oh, Christ. You are the BBC. I'll talk to you later after I've talked to the Director General. That Times man, stick him in the pantry. Mr. Barrington Ward? Yes, give him a pork pie. But he wants to know your line, so he can write his editorial. He's got 30 minutes before they go to press. Fine, but we don't have a bloody line. I'm going to have to talk to the Prime Minister. What a mess. What a right royal bastard bloody... Oh, Your Majesty. How do you do, Mr... Uh, Mr... Uh, uh, Mr... Uh, what do you do, Mr... Ah. What do I do? Uh, what do I do? I... Yes? Ah, there you are, Joseph. Your Majesty, if you just forgive us, Joseph here and I have matters of state to discuss. Yes, Prime Minister, of course. See you later. What did she mean, what do I do? What did she... Be... What's going on upstairs? Joseph, what... it's a disaster. There's a major revolt in the press over this. They're all saying it proves Munich was a disaster. That's not true. My settlement with Hitler still holds. We need something really big to come back at them with, but what? We might be able to do it this way. Yes? Hitler's been complaining about Poland for months now, that there are too many Germans behind Poland's borders. He wants them back. Yes. Well, what are you suggesting? We should propose a treaty with Poland guaranteeing her borders. 
That would shut the press up. But that would mean we'd have to go to war if Germany violates their borders. We wouldn't have to honour it if the time came, which it probably never would. How does Mr Hitler know that? You could reassure him privately through my courier service. It means now we have something to give to the press, a line. It shows them we're prepared to stand up to Germany, that we're working to a plan. It's pretty thin stuff. Well, these are desperate times. Very well. You start spreading that line round the newspapers in Westminster. I'll get back to the banquet. I still don't know what she meant. What are you talking about? The Queen. I mean, how dare she stand on this staircase and ask me what I do? What bloody business is it? Joseph, pull yourself together. Goodbye. Thank you so much for coming. Bye-bye. Oh, my God. That was a disaster. We used to have exactly the same problems in Bridgewater. The difficulty of gluing the various parties into one coalition, crowbarring them into a common front. What happened between Winston and Stafford? Uh, there was silence. Stony, flinty silence. I started waffling on between the two of them. More silence. Then suddenly they exploded. They flew at each other like two pouting queens in a Soho cellar. <laughs> oh, politics is so much about fear, not making a mistake. However much we cover it up, the knife is in every human's hand, just like in ancient Rome. Make one mistake in politics, one gesture of weakness, of conciliation at the wrong moment, and you're dead. Your head stuck on a pike on Parliament Green. We overheard it next door. Everybody talked very loud to cover it, <laughs> while simultaneously trying to hear every word that was spoken. <laughs> There's worse news. Yes? The Chronicle phoned... Apparently, Downing Street finally rigged up a line. They've announced there's going to be a grand treaty with Poland. We are to guarantee her borders. Oh, what amateurs! Czechoslovakia had a defensible border with a modern army and Russian backing. Poland is a medieval country with cavalry rather than tanks and no Russian guarantee. There's no way we can even pretend to defend her. I wonder if Guy Burgess is still doing Chamberlain's milk runs to Berlin. Reassuring the Fuhrer we pose no threat to him over Poland. Oh, yeah, of course he is. Chamberlain, so incompetent, will end up alone in a war against Germany with no Russia to back us up. What has Hitler got to fear? Come in. Ah, oh, Mr Burgess. Mr Ball. How are you? Quite well. How did you find Berlin? Oh, very well. I always find it reassuring to be among lots of people who actually know what they're doing. Yes. Have you got Herr Hitler's reply to the Prime Minister's letter? Yeah. Signed, sealed, <coughs> delivered. What are you doing? Not that it's any of your business. I'm working on the truth. My magazine. Uh, incidentally, would you be interested in writing a review? An article? Yeah, on Hitler's paintings. Uh, look, I've got some reproductions of his watercolours... Some of them are really quite impressive. And he has an eye. Uh, we're just trying to show people he's an ordinary, sensitive sort of human being, not the monster the Bolsheviks and Jews keep betraying him as. A refined man we can do business with. I don't really think art is my subject. Sometimes I ask myself what I'm doing. 
Really? Here I am. What time is it? Three o'clock in the morning. Slaving away in this dirty, poky little office of mine. Writing these endless articles, editorials, trying to prevent a war which is almost certainly going to come. You think so? That's unavoidable. Not that we'll fight it that seriously. We'd be bankrupt if we did. Then, after all our bloodthirsty warmongers like Churchill have slaked their lust, we'll patch up some sort of peace. And Adolf will go east and massacre endless Bolshers or whatever he wants to do, while we'll have some chance of returning to our original settlement and regaining our wealth by trading with the world. But sometimes you feel like giving up. It just goes on and on, this work. I find myself wondering, what is the purpose? I see. No, you don't. Because whenever I find myself thinking these bad thoughts, what am I doing? I remind myself of who I'm working for. A straight man, a good man. Working endlessly, selflessly for the good of others. Peace. He's not like you. Dirty, perverted, corrupted. Which is what I am like, too. His purity, his goodness keep me going. You could be untrue. Just for a minute. No, you don't understand. What I've learned is, once you've committed to a cause, you've got to see it through. Whatever the changes and corruptions and betrayals, that way you, your life, has a meaning. Yes. I think I understand what you're saying. Times got desperate. Very desperate. Despite our talking all the time with Berlin through our courier service. And then came a bombshell. The Germans have done what? They have signed a non-aggression pact with the Soviet Union. The Bolsheviks? Adolf Hitler has signed a pact with Joseph Stalin, his sworn enemy, the man he always claimed he was protecting us from. Of course, we had envoys over in Moscow proposing a similar sort of treaty, but they never seemed to take our proposals at all seriously. This is dreadful. There's worse. Military intelligence has been picking up reports of German armies, German tanks massing on the Polish border. They're going to invade Poland. But that means... Yes. There's no way politically we can... No. I'm going to have to declare war. Yes. Just France and us. So Hitler invaded Poland, and we actually declared war. Though no one would have noticed. Our army made its desultory way to France, and fought no one. Our navy patrolled the seven seas, and fought no one. Our pilots sat on their hands and dropped propaganda leaflets. It was all quite eerie, as though there was no war at all. I continued my work. Since almost all the press proprietors were against the war, we managed to maintain a tone of bland optimism, with no questions asked about our total lack of action. We continued to talk to the Germans through the Italians, and I worked on my little magazine about Churchill's drinking, Nicholson's pansiness, 
all the Jews who've worked their way up into senior positions in the government and City of London and the trade unions. And still, thank God, nothing happens. Nothing happens. And then, miraculously, something does. Cock-up triumphs over conspiracy. Winston, first Lord of the Admiralty, decides something must be done about Norway. Without thought, he rushes over men and ships. It's a disaster. A typical Winston cock-up. Dardanelles, too. And so Parliament assembles in full, solemn panoply to pass judgment on Winston's follies. And then it is amazing, terrifying, how things can suddenly change from nothing to everything out of nowhere. One second the House of Commons is all asleep. The next, all hell breaks loose. Lloyd George, Leo Amory, Clement Attlee on their feet, not kicking the hapless Winston, but turning enraged upon Chamberlain, denouncing him, his lethargy, his cowardice, his Laurel and Hardy levels of incompetence, while all the time heaping praise upon the head of Winston, who sits there on the front bench with his mouth agape. A force of nature, a visitation from the spiritual realm. Westminster... Candesses. Prime Minister, you've got to fight. I don't understand. Why are they all attacking me? You've got to fight back. You must fight back. Everything is at stake. They should be going for Winston. I know, but they're going for you. To add high explosive to the exchanges, news breaks of German armor advancing through the Ardennes, the Western Front tottering on the edge of collapse. All day a sort of rugby scrum of overweight MPs, or rather lots of different rugby scrums of overweight MPs, stagger and sway and totter around Westminster, hissing, shouting, haggling, until by evening it eventually resolves itself into one huge scrum, jammed down a dirty back passage somewhere in the bowels of Parliament. Uh, excuse me, I, I just want to get through. Uh, no, 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 that's my foot. You're Finally, I arrive at its centre to find Winston and Stafford Cripps staring, steel-eyed at each other. Excuse me! I, I've just got to say something. I've had enough of this. Of this nation indulging itself, of the good people in this country enjoying the cleanliness of their consciences, the wittiness of their wits, while the mad people, the stupid, the, the evil people run our country, run the world. <coughs> the clock is way past midnight. And yet still we indulge ourselves in pettiness, point-scoring, and debating tactics. Now, it's not only way past midnight, but in case you hadn't noticed, the Prime Minister of our blessed country has just happened, by, by his brilliant policies, to have placed all our necks into a single noose and, in a final stroke of incomparable statesmanship, kicked the stool away. So we dangle in mid-air while Adolf and Benito helpfully hang on to our legs. And yet... All heads jammed together in this single noose, while we choke to death. Are we devising brilliant and daring plans to spring the noose and save our lives and all our fellow countrymen and do something to redeem our national honour and defences and save the people of the world? No, we're not. We're still squabbling and screaming and proclaiming the supremacy of our own little rights and petty areas of interest. Indeed. It's quite simple. Winston, Stafford. Winston, you run the war. Stafford, you run the economy. 
No, 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 Winston, don't you dare complain about a socialist ruining the economy. Who the hell buggered it all up in the first place but you, as Chancellor of the Exchequer, when you returned us to the gold standard? And as for you, Stafford, who is it but you who's endlessly and consistently opposed government rearmament? No, no, I know you believe the government would turn those arms against the people, but would you rather have German bayonets stuck into them? It's quite simple. Winston gets his war, Stafford gets his Keynesian economy. And don't growl, Winston. You know perfectly well that's how the last war was won. I, uh, I apologise, gentlemen and, and ladies, for my loudness, <clears throat> my rudeness. As you know, it's, it's not my usual manner. <coughs> but as in Bridgewater, these coalitions need brokering. Do we have agreement? And we did. Do you realize this? Do you realize it? Winston Churchill. Winston Churchill! A walking disaster, the most unreliable man in British politics, drunk on his own rhetoric, is about to take over here, in Downing Street, in this very office. It's the treachery, Joseph. The treachery. Nobody in the Conservative Party wants him. Well, maybe 20 or 30 traitors. But no one will lift a hand to support me. Twenty MPs of our party abstained. Over 300 voted for you. You must fight it. We are in the middle of a war. Joseph, do you realise how tired I am? Neville... How tired I am of it all. I just really want to go home. I wander through the empty corridors of Downing Street. Already new people are moving in. All these once crowded rooms, offices, levers through which you could manipulate, channel, control power all over the world, now dead to your hand, moving out and away in subtle infidelity, starting to sense, enjoy the caresses and desires of others. Outside, a blank sort of world continues, on the London streets throughout the world, there is much chatter of the Ardennes, Dunkirk. But I have no appetite. I travel from office to office where I wielded power, had a desk, lift the now dead and lifeless papers and files of mine into tea chests and cardboard boxes for removal. The last place I visit is a concrete bunker we had built under the embankment, from which we used to monitor phone calls throughout London where I ran into someone I did not expect. Burgess. You. Yes, Mr. Bull. Me. Is that a Davidoff cigar you're smoking? Of course. The uniform you're wearing looks as though it's been tailored in every shop in German Street. Well, since joining MI6, I'm, of course, permitted to wear an officer's dress. <laughs> uniform from Thomas Lewin. Shirt from Salvucci's. Boots from Lobbs. A military overcoat from... Turnbull and Asser. With its collar turned up, quite the brigadier brilliant. <laughs> You've even cleaned under your fingernails. Mm. Manicured weekly at Trumpers. And with these machines I installed, I suppose you'll be bugging the phones of those who oppose the war, who favour appeasement. You'll be bugging my phone. 
I'm already bugging your phone, Mr. Ball. I've taught you a lot, Burgess. You taught me everything, Mr. Ball. Someday, Mr. Burgess, I expect you'll be very famous. I sincerely hope I won't. Churchill was crowned Prime Minister. For the sake of national unity, my leader, Neville Chamberlain, was granted a minor position in the Cabinet. But very soon, within months, he was stricken with throat cancer. Very soon he was dying. I go to see him, watched over crone-like by his two sisters and his wife. Mr. Chamberlain? I enter his bedroom alone. Who's that? It's me, Mr. Chamberlain. Joseph Ball. Who? You? How are you, Mr. Chamberlain? All right. I, I, I just thought I should come and see you. See how you are. Tell you what is happening in the world. Oh. Churchill's made a right cock up. France fallen, we're all alone. Armies in retreat everywhere, bombs dropping all through our cities. And you know the worst. We're bust. The pound has collapsed. The first trading nation of the world in Washington, desperately begging for a loan, the Americans imposing all sorts of loan shark conditions on us. Just what you said would happen, Mr. Chamberlain. If we ever had a war, it's the end. Are you still there? Oh, yes, Mr. Chamberlain. A wonderful thing happened this morning. Or maybe it wasn't this morning. Maybe it was another morning. It's very difficult to remember things exactly with all this morphine I'm on. But Hilda and Ida came in very early. While it was still dark, to treat me. And we decided to raise the window and listen to the bird song outside as the dawn came up. There wasn't much at this time of year, but we remembered back to when we were children and we used to go out into the garden in the springtime while it was still dark, and sit there, distinguishing all the different birds by their song. White throats, blackbirds, thrushes, nightingales, linnets, as they started to sing in their dawn chorus. My leader died. I stand alone in my back garden, by my vegetable patch. Everyone has to dig for victory in this war. While overhead one of those spitfires, our 
bloody heroic fighter plane swoops and climbs and rolls, disturbing everyone's Sunday peace and quiet. I turn my bonfire. I harbor no illusions about what I've done. I fought for my leader because what he did was right and noble. But in doing so, I have committed many bad and disgraceful and evil acts. That is the correct, the right thing to do. <laughs> we were engaged in a war. And so, to protect my leader, his memory, from all the sordid and petty things that I have done that will be used to undermine and destroy his reputation, I burn all my papers, all the records of what I did for him, because that is my duty. And even though he is dead, I serve him. Onto the bonfire with them. <laughs> he fought for peace and was overcome by all those who surrendered to war. A war which has engulfed the whole world. Untold millions are dying even as I speak, being horrendously slaughtered. This is the end of Britain, of our empire. Even if we win, we lose. We shall be a second-rate power. And who shall win? Bolsheviks, Jews, Americans, materialists, half-men. Without conscience, without intelligence, without imagination. A world stumbling around in darkness and frenzy. Sea Change by John Fletcher Harold Nicholson was played by Charles Edwards Joseph Ball by Kim Wall Neville Chamberlain, John Rowe and Guy Burgess, Carl Prekop Rex Sleeper was Richard Delane Vernon Bartlett, Adam Billington The Reverend Cresswell Webb, Gerard McDermott Metford Bowne, James Laley and The Queen was Adjoa Ando other parts were played by Christopher Webster and Ricky Lawton. The director was Mark Beebe.